Welcome back to our study of First Kings. We are in First Kings chapter 20 today. And in First Kings chapter 20, we shift our focus from the focus we've had on Elijah, and then at the end of chapter 19, uh, Elisha, who was um, chosen by the Lord to be the prophet to follow Elijah himself, and will later uh, take up Elijah's mantle. Um, in chapter 20, we focus on King Ahab and the conflict between King Ahab and the king of Syria. So remember, King Ahab is the king of Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom with 10 tribes. Judah is the southern kingdom uh, with two tribes. And so the northern kingdom of Israel is ruled over by Ahab. Remember, Ahab is an idolater. He's married to Jezebel, who is also an idolater. And uh, so Ahab has been uh, sort of the counterpoint to Elijah here lately in 1 Kings. Elijah is the one who's standing for the Lord, and Ahab is the one who is standing against the Lord. But in chapter 20, uh, something happens that we might not expect from what we've read about Ahab so far. And it was surprising to me um, when I began to read it and study it for this lesson. Perhaps it'll be surprising for you as well. Well, let's look and see what happens. We're just going to do uh, the first portion of the chapter, verses 1 to 25. This is uh, quite a long chapter, so we're going to break it up. And uh, let's see what happens in 1 Kings chapter 20 in this conflict between Ahab and the king of Syria. Verse 1 says, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you, saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So, first thing we notice here, right, is Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Syria, is initiating hostility against Israel, right? He gathers his army together. He's got 32 kings with him, as well as horses and chariots, and they come to Samaria, and it says they closed in on Samaria and fought against it. So he comes to Samaria with all these other kings and all their horses and chariots and fights against Samaria. Samaria, of course, is a city in Israel, perhaps it's functioning as the capital at this point, sure seems that way here. Um, and so Samaria is a city in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and that's where King Ahab is, and that's where Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, comes and begins to fight against Israel, against Samaria. Verse, uh, then in verse 2, Ben-Hadad sends messengers into the city of Samaria to make demands of King Ahab. And the demand he makes in verse 3 is for silver and gold 
and Ahab's best wives and children. That's a pretty steep demand, right? But Ahab agrees to it. In verse 4, he says, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. So perhaps Ahab looks at the situation and thinks, there's no way we can hold off Ben-Hadad, or if we do, it's going to cost way too much. And so if he wants silver and gold and women and children, that's just what we're going to have to give him. We don't know Ahab's motive or what he was looking at or considering, but he talks at least like he's going to go along with this first demand. But then Ben-Hadad makes another demand right after this demand, and he says in verse 5, you know, here's what I said, right? I said, you got to give me your silver and gold and wives and children. Then in verse 6, he says, nevertheless, on top of that or in spite of that or whatever, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Um, so whatever, whatever you like, we're going to take it. All right? So um, Ben-Hadad is clearly um, you know, thinking he's got the upper hand. Ahab, at least at first, was, seemed to be acknowledging that Ben-Hadad had the upper hand. And then let's see what happens next. Verse 7 says, Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. Talking about Ben-Hadad. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So let's pause right there. Something happened between that first and second demand that um, escalated things. Now, it's not immediately clear on reading these two demands that the second one is much different than the first one, right? You might think, well, if you're if if Ahab has already agreed to give you his silver and his gold and his wives and his and wives and his children, what else could you possibly ask for? But evidently, the second demand is even greater, and it is enough greater that Ahab and the elders of Israel say, we're not going along with this. We cannot acquiesce to that demand. Uh, Ahab says, um, you know, see how this man is, is um, seeking trouble, right? So maybe part of the problem is, uh, look, you made a demand and we agreed to it, and then you made an even greater demand before we uh, gave you what you demanded the first time. So this guy's just, he's not being reasonable. He's just trying to see how much he can get out of us. And so if we don't put our foot down and say no, then eventually he's going to take everything. And uh, so Ahab and the elders of Israel say, that's too much. We're not going that far. We're not going along with this. And so the elders say, don't listen to him. Don't consent. Don't go along with this demand. Now, verse 9. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who followed me. And so, so, 
Ahab sends back and says, I agreed to the first demand, and I stand by that. But the second demand you made is too much. I can't go along with that. I'm not going to do it. And so the king of Syria, uh, king of Syria Benadad, he sends back to Ahab and says, you know, the gods do so to me and more also, meaning basically like a, a curse be upon me, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. Which seems to mean something like, how do you think I'm going to pay my soldiers if you don't give me what I'm asking for? I can't pay them in sand, right? I've got to put something substantial in their hands and you have to give it to me. This is how I'm going to pay my army, right? I can't, I can't leave without the spoils of war because that's how I'm going to pay my soldiers. So that's why I'm making these demands. So that's what he says. Now, notice what Ahab says in response. And this is great. Verse 11. It says, And the king of Israel answered, Tell him, that is, tell Ben-Hadad, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Obviously, you put on your armor before a battle. You take it off after a battle, or at least you hope you do, right? Because if you take it off after the battle, that means you survive the battle. What Ahab is saying is, look, it's one thing to boast when you're putting on your armor before you fought anybody. You can talk about all the ways you're going to win and how many people you're going to strike down and how great your victory is going to be. But... All you're doing is putting on your armor. You haven't survived the battle yet. You haven't taken off your armor yet. Don't boast as you're putting on your armor like somebody who's already won and is taking off his armor. So Ben-Hadad is um, making demands of Ahab as though he already knows he's going to win. Right? He made a demand. Ahab went along with it. Then he ratcheted up the demand and Ahab said, I'm not going to do that. And Benadad said, look, how am I going to pay my soldiers if you don't give me all this stuff? And Ahab essentially said, how do you know you're going to win? How do you know you're going to get to pay your soldiers with my spoils anyway? And so uh, he sends that message, right? Don't boast when you're putting on your armor as though you're taking off your armor. He sends that message back and then verse 12, it says, When Benadad heard this message as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So Benadad received that message from Ahab and basically said, Okay, those are fighting words. It's time to, it's time to do battle. And so take your positions. We're going to fight. So um, what, here, here's where this story gets really surprising to me. Um, because Ahab is a notorious idolater, right? because he's been on the side of the prophets of Baal and he's been in this conflict with Elijah, there's been a drought for three and a half years, there was the big showdown with the prophets of Baal and so on, um, I would have expected Ahab and the nation of Israel to be defeated by Ben-Hadad because of their idolatry, because of their sin. But that's not what happens, at least not here. I was surprised by that. See if you're surprised by that. See, listen to what happens. Verse 13, it says, And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, 
Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? He said, Thus says the Lord, By the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, You. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Now, there's a lot about that that's really interesting. A prophet comes to King Ahab and says, he delivers a message from the Lord, and the, the Lord says, Behold, I will give into your hand, give this multitude into your hand this day. So I would expect a warning of destruction. Because of your sin, your rebellion, your breaking covenant, this multitude outside your gate, they're going to destroy you. Right? But that's not what the prophet says. The prophet says that God is going to give this multitude into Ahab's hand. And Ahab listens to the prophet, asks follow-up questions like, okay, well, who is the Lord going to use to deliver this army into my hand? And then he gets the answer. It's this group of people. All right, well, who's supposed to start the battle? You are. Okay, well, let's go. So Ahab not only receives a good message from the Lord, so to speak, right? You're, this army in front of you is going to be defeated. It's not a message of judgment, right? But a message of deliverance. And Ahab listens to this prophet, which is not what we would have expected Ahab to do. We would have expected Ahab to kind of do his own thing, right? Whatever he wanted to do, because he's not been listening to Elijah, right? But he listens to this prophet, and um, I, again, I was perplexed by this, right? Why is Ahab and Israel, why is God going to defeat their enemies and, and rather than cause them to be defeated because of their sin against the Lord? That's what we're used to happening. And the key, I think, is in verse 13 at the end, right? God says, I will give it, this multitude, into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This seems to be another episode like the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where God is going to show his people that he is the Lord, that he is God, and that the gods that the other nations worship are not gods and not worthy of devotion and sacrifice and so on. And so what seems to be happening in this first half of chapter 20 is that God is not giving Israel what they deserve. He's not yet handing them over to the punishment that they have merited by their idolatry. But instead, he is still seeking to win Israel back. He is still seeking to show Israel who he is so that they will turn back to him. He did that by answering Elijah with fire on Mount Carmel and consuming the sacrifice to show the people that he was God and not Baal. And he's doing that now through this battle against the nation of Syria, delivering this great army into the hands of Ahab, even though he doesn't deserve it. And notice this, verse at the end of verse 15, it says, um, you know, well, all of verse 15 says, He mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. 
So if that's a, like a select force, and, and somebody suggested these are probably novice fighters, that, that may be true as well. Whichever way, right? That's not a lot of people, but if they were really good, you know, 232, that's not too bad. But then he says, and after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. That's not a lot. That's not a great army. That's not very many people at all. And yet, God says he's going to hand this great multitude right, that's gathered against them into their hands. So let's look at verse 16. It says, And they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, which is what the prophet had said. They were the ones who God would use. And Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive, or if they have come out for war, take them alive. So one thing I read suggested uh, Benadad's not making any sense here, right? Uh, he's drinking himself drunk, so maybe he's talking nonsense. Whether they come for peace or for war, you know, take them alive. Well, how do you take alive someone who's coming against you for war, right? So as they suggested, maybe he's not making any sense, or maybe he's still arrogant and boastful and thinks, look, even if they come out to fight us, don't fight them. Just take them alive. Take them prisoner, right? There's so many more of us or we're so much stronger or whatever. Either one of those could be true or it could be a combination of the two. But anyway, verse 19 says, so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them but Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Verse 22 says, Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. So God did give the Syrians into the hand of Ahab and the nation of Israel, just like he said. Despite the smallness of their force, despite the fact that they had not been faithful to the Lord, God showed himself to the nation of Israel by delivering this great army over to the, or into the hands of the nation of Israel. But the prophet who told Ahab that was going to happen says to him, Now you get ready because Benadad is not done. He's going to come back in the spring so you need to get ready for that as well. And then we'll finish with this last paragraph. It says, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings each from his post, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. Now, this gives us a hint of what is to come with this next battle that the prophet has warned Ahab is coming. The king of Syria is told, hey, the reason why we lost is because the Israelites, their gods must be gods of the hills, and so um, what's implied there is we were fighting them on the hills and because their gods are gods of the hills, that's why we lost. 
but they say, uh, let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. So this is the the pagan notion that's common in um, you know probably Greek and Roman uh, thought about their gods and and other religions as well, where you have a a multitude of gods, a plethora of gods, and so these gods are responsible for different things. Like you have the god of farming, right, and you have the god of of um, you have a god for the land and a god for the rain and a god for the sun and, and all these different things and so they're thinking in these polytheistic pagan terms and they're thinking well their gods must be strong on the hills but our god is our gods are strong on the plains and so if we'll fight them in the plains next time we'll win we just need to replenish our army and maybe reorganize, right? They say replace the kings with commanders, reorganize the army, replenish the army, fight in a spot where our gods are stronger than theirs, and then we're going to win. Well, we know what's going to happen when somebody says something like that in the Bible, right? If somebody says, you know, we're going to defeat them because, you know, their gods are, are stronger in this particular place, but our gods will be stronger over here. You can be pretty confident, unless God has already said, you know, I'm going to let them win. You can be pretty confident in that scenario. God is going to show that he is no mere God of the hills, uh, a God who has no power on the plains, that he is going to show that he is God over all, that he is the one true God and the gods of the nations are nothing. They are no gods. They have no power compared to him. So when they start boasting against the God of Israel as though their gods are greater, even if only in a specific location or a certain scenario, typically God is going to show in very clear terms um, that they have no idea what they're talking about because he is the one true and living God. And of course, we know um, that because he's the one and only God, that also means he's the one that everybody is accountable to. And he is the God who has sent his only son so that we can have forgiveness of sin and salvation and life uh, through him. And that's why Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life Right? That's why the Bible says there's salvation in no one else, because there is no other God. And so in this story, right, God is showing to Ahab and to the nation of Israel through this defeat of the army of Syria that he is the Lord, that he is the real, true God. And the chief way that God has shown us and really shown the world that he is the one God is that he sent his son into the world to take on flesh as a man, live a perfect life, die on the cross, and then he raised, them from the, raised him from the dead. And Paul says in Acts 17, it's uh, God has given assurance to all that um, God is going to judge the world by one particular man, and that's Jesus. And he's given assurance to everybody that that's what he's going to do by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I'm just sort of paraphrasing there. That's from, uh, from Acts 17. So there's one God, right? And he sent his one son. And so there is only one way to be saved. Um, but also God did that so that we would know, right? That he is 
the one true God. And we give him praise. Amen.